Chapter 23 A Story of an Eccentric Woman Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Matthew 26, 13. The evangelists, the writers of the gospels, are the historians of the time of Christ, of course, but what strange historians they are! They leave out just that which worldly historians would write, and they record just that which the worldly historians would have passed over. What historian would have thought of recording the story of the widow and her two mites? Would a David Hume or a Tobias Smollett have spared half a page for such an incident? Do you think that even a Thomas Macaulay could have found it in his pen to write down a story of an eccentric woman who broke an alabaster box of precious ointment upon the head of Jesus? But so it is. Jesus does not value things by their glare and glitter, but by their intrinsic value. Christ was sitting, or reclining, at the table of Simon the leper. A sudden thought struck this woman. She went to her home, got her money, and spent it on an alabaster box of ointment. Or perhaps she had it already prepared and waiting at home. Anyway, she brought it and hurried into the house. Without asking anyone's permission or explaining her intention, she broke the alabaster vase, which was itself of great value, and a stream of the most precious ointment with a very refreshing fragrance flowed forth. She poured this on his head. So plentiful was the outpouring that it streamed right down to his feet, and the whole house was filled with the aroma of the ointment. The disciples murmured, but the Saviour commended. What was there in the action of this woman that was worthy of commendation, and of such high commendation, too, that her memory must be preserved and passed down with the gospel itself throughout all ages? In the first place, I think this act was done from the impulse of a loving heart, and this is what made it so remarkable. The heart is better than the head, after all, and the renewed heart is infinitely superior to the head. Somehow or other, although grace will undoubtedly renew the understanding, yet it takes longer to sanctify the understanding than it does the affections. At least the heart is first affected. It is that which is first touched, and being swifter in its progress than the head, it is generally more uncontaminated by the atmosphere around, and so more clearly perceives that which is right. In our day, we fall into the habit of calculating whether something is our duty or not. But do we never have an impulse of the heart that is more powerful and more expressive than the mere calculation of moral obligations? Our heart says to us, Get up and go visit such and such a one who is sick. We stop and say, Is it my duty? If I don't go, won't somebody else go? Is my visit absolutely necessary? Perhaps your heart has once said, Devote all that you have substantially to the cause of Christ. If we obeyed the heart, we would do it at once. But instead of that, we stop and shake our heads and we begin to calculate the question whether it is precisely our duty. This woman did no such thing. It was not her duty, I speak broadly, it was not her positive duty to take the alabaster box and break it on the head of Christ. 
She did not do it from a sense of obedience, but she did it from a higher motive. There was an impulse in her heart that gushed forth like a pure stream, overflowing every objection and question, duty or no duty, go and do it. She took the most precious things she could find, and out of simple love, guided by her renewed heart, she went at once and broke the alabaster box and poured the ointment on his head. If she had stopped a minute to consider, she would not have done it at all. If she had pondered and considered and reasoned, she never would have accomplished it. But this was the heart acting, the invincible heart, the force of a spontaneous impulse, if not of very inspiration, while the head with its various parts had not been allowed time to hold a council. It was the heart's dictate that fully and entirely carried it out. In these times we lace ourselves so tight that we don't give our hearts room to act. Instead, we just calculate whether we should do it, whether it is specifically our duty. Oh, I wish to God that our hearts would grow bigger. Let our heads be as they are, or let them be improved, but let the heart have full opportunity, and how much more would be done for Christ than has ever yet been done. I want you to see that this woman, acting from her heart, did not act as a matter of formality or ceremony. Will you give to Christ no more than is due, just as you give to Caesar when you pay your taxes? What if the tax is only a shekel? Is the shekel all he is to have? Is such a master as this to be served by calculations? Is he to have his required pay every day just as the common laborer? God forbid that we should indulge such a spirit. Sadly, the majority of Christians do not even rise as high as that, and if they do get there, they fold their arms and are quite content. They say, I do as much as anybody else. In fact, I probably do a little more. I'm sure that I do my duty. Nobody can find any fault with what I do. If people were to expect me to do more, they would be really unreasonable. If this is how you feel, then you have not yet learned this woman's love in all its heights and depths. You don't know how to do an unreasonable thing, a thing that is not expected of you, out of the divine impulse of a heart fully consecrated to Jesus. The first era of the Christian church was an era of wonders, because then Christian men obeyed the prompting of their hearts. What wonders they used to do! A voice within the heart said to an apostle, Go to a heathen country and preach. He never counted the cost, whether his life would be safe or whether he would be successful. He went and did whatever his heart told him. To another it said, Go and distribute all that you have. And the Christian went and did it, and gave all that he had into the common supply. He never asked whether it was his duty. His heart told him to do it, and he obeyed at once. Now we have become stale. We have ourselves in the same rut as everyone else. We all do what other people do. We are content with just performing the routine and accomplishing the formalism of religious duties. This is very much unlike this woman, who went out of all order because her heart told her to do so, and she obeyed from her heart. This, I think, is the first part of the woman's act that won a deserved commendation. The second commendation is that what this woman did was done purely to Christ and for Christ. Why did she not take this spikenard ointment 
and sell it and give the money to the poor. No, she might have thought, I love the poor. I would help them at any time. I would clothe the naked and feed the hungry to the utmost of my ability. But I want to do something for him. Well, why did she not get up and take the place that Martha did, and begin to wait at the table? John 12, 2. Ah, she thought, Martha is at the table dividing her services. Simon the leper and Lazarus and all the rest of the guests have a share in her attention. I want to do something directly for him, something that he will have all to himself, something that he cannot give away, but which he must have and which must belong to him. I don't think that any other disciple in all Christ's experience ever had that thought. I don't find in all the evangelists another instance like this. Jesus had disciples whom he sent out two by two to preach, and they did so very boldly, for they desired to benefit their fellow men in the service of their Lord. He had disciples too, I don't doubt, who were very, very happy when they distributed the bread and the fish to the hungry multitudes, because they felt they were doing an act of humanity in supplying the needs of the hungry. However, I don't think he had one disciple who thought about doing something exactly and directly for him, something of which no one else could partake, something that would be Christ's and Christ's alone. The very beauty of this woman's act lay in the fact that she did it all for the Lord Jesus Christ. She felt that she owed him everything. It was he who had forgiven her sins. It was he who had opened her eyes and had given her the ability to see the light of the heavenly day. It was he who was her hope, her joy, and her all. Her love went out in its common actions to her fellow men. It went out toward the poor, the sick, and the needy. But oh, it went in all its intensity to him. That man, that blessed man, the God man, she must give something to him. She could not be content to put it in that bag there, but she must go and put it right on his head. She could not be content that Peter or James or John would have a part of it, but it all must go on his head. Even if others might say it was wasteful, yet she felt it was not, but that whatever she could give to him was well given because it went to him to whom she owed her all. The scene is a very simple one, but it is extremely captivating. You will do your acts in religion far better if you can always develop the desire to do them all for Christ. This woman did an extraordinary thing for Christ. Not content with doing what other people had done, nor caring to find a precedent, she set out to reveal her intense devotion, even though she might have known that some would call her crazy, and all would think her foolish and wasteful. Yet she did it, an extraordinary thing, for the love she had for her Lord. It seems to me that Jesus praised this woman and handed down this memorial because her act was so beautifully expressive. There was more virtue in it than you could see. The manner, as well as the matter, of her willing sacrifice might well excite the rebuke of people whose practical religion is miserly and frugal. It's not enough that she pours out the ointment with such reckless abundance, but she is so rash and extravagant that she actually broke the box. Don't be surprised at this, but admire the absorbed enthusiasm of her godly soul. Love is a passion. 
If you only knew and felt its intensity, you would never marvel at an act so expressive. Her love could no more wait to conform to the customs of service than it could count the cost of her offering. A mighty impulse of devotion carried her soul far above all ordinary routine. Her conduct simply symbolized the inspiration of a grateful devotion and reverence. A sanctified heart, more beautiful than the transparent vase of alabaster, was broken that hour. Only from a broken heart can the sweet spices of grace give forth their rich perfume. We sometimes sing, Love and grief our heart dividing. But let me say that love, grief, and gratitude, the spikenard, myrrh, and frankincense of the gospel, blend together here. Footnote This is from a hymn by James Allen, 1734 to 1804, that begins with Sweet the Moments, Rich in Blessing. The heart must expand and break, or the perfume would never fill the house. Every muscle of the woman's face, every involuntary motion of her body, as delirious as it might appear to the unsympathizing observers, was in harmony with her heart's emotion. Her every feature gives evidence of her sincerity. What they could coldly criticize, Jesus delivers to them for a study. Here is one on whom a Savior's love has produced its appropriate effects. Here is a heart that has brought forth the most precious fruits. Not only admiration for her, but kindness to us moved our Lord when He resolved to illustrate the gospel from then on, wherever it is published and proclaimed, with this portrait of saintly love that broke the delicate vase and burst the tender heart in one moment. That woman was saying to Christ, Dear Lord, I give myself away. She went home and brought out the most precious thing she had. If she had possessed anything worth ten thousand times as much, she would have brought that. In fact, she really did bring him everything. She hath wrought a good work upon me. Matthew 26, 10. Note these two last words, upon me. Some people might say, it's not a good work to go and spill all that ointment and bring about so much waste. No, says Jesus, it is not a good work in relation to you but it is a good work upon me. After all, the best sort of good work is a good work that is done for and upon Christ, an act of devotion that faith in His name and love to His person would dictate. A good work upon the poor is commendable. A good work upon the church is excellent, but a good work upon Christ is certainly one of the very highest and noblest kinds of good works. I am obligated to say that neither Judas nor the disciples could comprehend this. There is a mystic virtue in the acts of some Christian people that common Christians do not and cannot comprehend. That mystic virtue consists in this, that they do it as to the Lord and not unto men, Colossians 3.23, and in their service they serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Additionally, our Lord protects the woman with another explanation. He says, Do not trouble her, do not reflect upon what might have been done for the poor, for ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. You can always do good to them whenever you please. Matthew 26, 10-11. He seems here to respond to her accusers, 
If there are any people around who are poor, give to them yourselves. Empty that bag of mine out, Judas. Don't hide that away in your pocket. Scripture, Whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. Mark 14, 7. Don't begin talking about the poor and about what might have been done. Go and do what might have been done yourselves. This poor woman has done a good thing for me. I will not be here long. Do not trouble her. So, if you complain about people because they don't do what people normally do, because they venture a little out of the regular line, there is plenty for you to do. Your errand might not be exactly the same as what someone else has done, but there is plenty for you to do. Go and do it, and don't blame those who do extraordinary things. There are multitudes of ordinary people to attend to ordinary things. It is those who give all they have who are different. Do not trouble those people. There are not many of them. They will not trouble you. You will have to travel from here to John O'Groat's house before you come against many dozen. Footnote. John O'Groat's is a village in the far north of Scotland. The village is named after a 15th century Dutchman by the name of Jan de Groot. They are rare creatures, not often discovered. Do not trouble them. They may be enthusiastic and they may be excessive. But if you would build an institute to put them all in, it would require only a very small sort of a house. Leave them alone. There are not many who do much for their master. There are not many who are irrational enough to think that there is nothing worth living for but to glorify Christ and magnify his holy name. This woman thought she was just anointing Christ. No, says Christ, she is anointing me for my burial. Matthew 26, 12. Mark 14, 8. There was more in her action than she knew of, and there is more in the spiritual promptings of our heart than we will ever discover to the day of judgment. When the Lord first said to George Whitefield, Go and preach out on Kennington Common, did Whitefield know what the result was to be? No. He undoubtedly thought that he would just stand once upon the top of a table and speak to about 5,000 people. However, There was a greater intent in the heart of Providence. The Lord meant that to set the whole country in a blaze and to bring forth a glorious renewal of Pentecostal times, the like of which had not been seen before. Only seek to have your heart filled with love and then obey its first spiritual dictate. Do not stop. However extraordinary the command may be, go and do it. Have your wings outstretched like the angels before the throne, and the very moment that the echo vibrates in your heart, fly, fly, and you will be flying you know not where. You will be carrying out an errand higher and nobler than your imagination has ever dreamed.